Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and we are here live at the beautiful Athenium Theater in Chicago, Illinois. Very nice. We should say the sold-out Athenium Theater. Thank you, Chicago. We feel very loved here. And big thanks to the Athenium. You guys have been awesome. And AEG, the promoters. Uh, Let's do this, buddy. Let's. Man, I'm sweating already. Good Lord, what's wrong with me? It's a hot hot show. Hot, hot show. (laughs) Right, everybody? And it's me. Let's be honest. Well, you're a hot, hot podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) Did we say who is who, by the way? Oh, I think everyone knows. You guys know, right, that that's Chuck and I'm Josh. There's, there's a svelte, handsome guy, and there's a chubby, bearded guy. We really like to keep ourselves on the opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> Jerry is not here. I'm sorry. Jerry is not here. That is so sweet of you guys. We I get know. in awe every time we say Jerry's not here. And cheers when she is here. I wish we could say why, but uh, we'll announce it soon. She has some top-secret business going on. Yeah, that's not cryptic at all. Yes. <laughs> She's leaving us for another podcast. That's no, not kidding. true. Totally that's kidding. not true. She, she's not allowed to leave. She would never leave it. We fired her. So no. that's not true either. <laughs> so um, you guys know how you have no idea what topic we're doing tonight? You're about to understand why. Because we're doing public relations. <laughs> and before you leave, please hang on. Because actually, public relations is one of the most interesting topics we have ever ever encountered it has it all it has manipulative psychology it has old-timey history it has cool ads it has like mind control it's got it all it has it all nazis like the cia like everything is involved in public relations and as a matter of fact we're sitting right smack dab in the middle of the world that public relations built and we should say, we should say, are there any PR professionals here tonight? Yes? Well, we Ooh. want to apologize in advance. <laughs> Everybody be nice to those guys, the Bartman of the show. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. Did everybody get a drink? Everyone settled in? Any Malort? Did they serve Malort here? Any what? What is that? I told myself I had to mention Malort. What is it? Malort... Well, what is it? It's uh, it's a, it's wormwood, right? I was gonna guess wormwood. What is this stuff? It's I'm, it's made me psychic. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 from Chicago, I believe, right? Or at least very big here. And it's it's the most disgusting thing you will ever have cross your tongue. But does it get you pretty buzzed? I don't know because I've never had more than a sip, <laughs> and then three days later, I'm still like brushing my teeth with steel wool, oh, yeah. trying to get the taste out of my mouth. Weird. Yeah, the aftertaste is pretty special. I got you. Are you guys on Malort right now? A couple of people are, huh? I've heard it's a hipster thing now. I I can buy that. Give me a shot of Malort and a PBR and some steel wool. Yeah, <laughs> but only artisanal steel wool. I'm sorry. Artisanal steel wool? Yeah. Wow. All right. So let's get this thing going. 
Uh, if you go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics website like we do. Yep. Just to read. Uh, you can look up PR specialists. And has anyone heard our the recent one on uh, publicists? This is tangential, but this is better. Because we like to save the good stuff for live. Right. Uh, if you look up PR specialists, you can find this definition. They are someone who creates and maintains a favorable public image for the organization they represent, uh, designing media releases to shape public perception of the organization and to increase awareness of its work and goals. <laughs> Sounds very nice and innocuous, doesn't it? Chuck just started with a quote from the Bureau of right. Labor Statistics. <laughs> It's not, if, if you read any podcasting handbook, they specifically say not to start a show off like that. And you know because you wrote it. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's self-published, but still, I mean, it's, it's there. I think it's gaining some steam. You're, you're doing fine. Uh, so it seems like a pretty straight-ahead job, and if you heard publicists, it's pretty straight-ahead. But the creator of PR, there was literally one dude who created the job of public relations uh, Specialist, mm-hmm. and his name is Edward Bernays. Anybody familiar? Heard of that guy? A yeah. couple yeah. of people. That's good. For the rest of you, prepare to have your minds blown. Yes. This guy is arguably tied for first, second most evil person in the 20th century. <laughs> and that's I really go, saying something because there was at least one really, really yeah. evil dude in the 20th century. I would you know go I mean? number two behind a certain German man. <laughs> There's the Nazis' appearance. That's appearance one, by the way. Yeah, there are going to be like at least three Nazi references tonight. <laughs> uh, so he was voted by Life Magazine as one of the 100 most influential uh, people of the 20th century. And we easily agree that he's like a top tenor. Right. We say Bosch to Life's stupid rating system. Right. Ours is better. I would say top six. Top six? Top six most influential. Maybe top three. Ooh. Yeah. And, and, it's, it's not just us, like, hating on Edward Bernays. Are you guys familiar with the New York Times? It's a newspaper. And they write obituaries. It's They're no Chicago Sun-Times. No, I'll give not. you that. Uh, or Tribune. All right. Which one did Ebert work for? Tribune, right? Times? The Times? Really? I thought he was a Tribune guy. So, okay, all right, dude. Sun-Times. <laughs> I got it. Was Siskel or the other newspaper? Were they rival newspapers? Oh, oh really? Man, I used to love that show. Love this town, man. <laughs> have you anyway, seen that? Have you seen that documentary? Man, we're already sidetracked. About the Eber documentary. Yeah, the Roger Eber one. It, have you guys no. seen that? No. God, so good. And like, get the box of tissues ready when you watch it too, unless you have no heart. Like Edward Bernays. If you're dead inside, yeah. So uh, the the New York Times wrote an obituary. Edward Bernays. Lived to be 103, by the way, because the most evil ones do. Right. Mr. Burns, Dick Cheney, right. they all develop like a huge hump and like claw-like fingers, you know, and that kind of thing. Ever Bernays was among them, lived to 103. And when he finally died, the New York Times wrote an obituary. And I, I think they try to be hard-hitting yet polite. Right. So this is the most polite that the New York Times could possibly be. They said that Ever Bernays was, quote, either a benefactor of the human race or someone who had a lot to answer for. They left off in hell at the end. I'm sure his relatives were like, that was nice. Yeah, at least he was in the Times, I guess. So he, uh, because he lived so long, his career literally spanned from World War I, not World War II, World War I to the beginning of 
the information age in the mid-1990s. Yeah. So he had a lot of influence, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I hope you do that like eight times tonight. <laughs> so he's a very controversial guy. And uh, what he did was he realized early on that he could lift, weirdly enough, he could lift a lot of his practices <laughs> from Sigmund Freud. Uh, Freud came along and he said, you know, there's this thing called the self, these unconscious desires and fears that all of us have. We don't know about them because they're unconscious. And it just it's a, a thing with every human being. And Bernay said, you know what? I think I can use that to manipulate people into being interested in products. And uh, Sigmund Shlomo Freud, by the way. Yeah, did you anyone know, know that? Middle name? It's true. He didn't, he didn't go by Shlomo. He was very much ashamed of his middle name. And so he, he basically lifted this stuff, this fear and desire and preying on that because uh, he was his uncle. So Freud was Bernays' uncle. And we call Freud Uncle Shlomo for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> if you get confused, just remember that. Uncle Shlomo equals Sigmund, or greater than Sigmund Freud. So, so Uncle Shlomo was... Uh, fairly innocent in this whole affair like basically as far as psychology goes he just basically stumbled across the self this idea that we're all driven by selfish desires that we're not aware of and that we all subscribe <clears throat> to a herd mentality and that like you guys all care what the group thinks more than anything else and that's how you think and same with us and anybody right and so this is what what Shlomo came up with and it was a big deal like up to this point like people didn't talk about their feelings they didn't think about their feelings they certainly didn't think that they were driven unconsciously like automatons by these crazy desires and the first thing Bernays thinks of is like that'd be a great way to sell to people exactly I think I can exploit that and sell more stuff so if you think about like the advertising you see every day today it's it's a different world than it was back then back in the day um, advertising was very straightforward, and it literally just advertised how a product worked as it should. Like you would, you would see an advertisement about a car, like the new Ford runs like a car should run. <laughs> and it looks like this, and it gets you from point A to point B. Good night. That's all you need. Or the Kenmore blender, it really blends well. That was advertising. Yeah, and may- maybe, maybe in like the more expensive ads, there'd be like a hand-drawn finger pointing at you sure. <laughs> and it was a you in all caps with a, some exclamation points saying like you buy this morphine because it'll give you the buzz you're looking for you know that kind of thing but it was based on this idea that you were a rational actor in charge of your own decisions and that you would want to buy this if you if it was explained to you that the ford was the best choice for you it was, treated you like a human being, in other words. When Freud came along, he came up with the self, and then Bernays figured out how to hijack it. All that went out the window. And all of a sudden, we were all kind of slaves to these selfish desires. Well, yeah. Basically, I mean, think about the ads you see now. If, if you can find an ad that doesn't prey on some fear or desire, it's either, <laughs> uh, you've had a rough day. Indulge in that Ben & Jerry's, Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> Have you guys noticed that Ben & Jerry's ads now say Chuck at the end? <laughs> Of all of them. They know their audience. Or, or a fear, um, or you deserve like the sports car, like all sure. these things that, you know, you deserve all this stuff because you work hard. You're getting old. Don't you want to stay relevant? Buy the sports car. All of your friends are going to Tortuga and having fun. Why aren't you? Right. Would you like to stay relevant? 
we have a product for you that will help you feel young again. Right. Or at the base of it all, use this mouthwash or you'll die alone. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of accurate as far as advertising goes. And back in Bernays' day, the the reason they they, uh, had ads like that is because you literally used something until it was done back then. Like you drove your car until it quit running or you had your blender until it quit blending. There was no such thing as buying the new version of the thing you already have. And I know no one here has a phone in their pocket and another phone at home that still works. (laughs) It's gathering dust. It's not the new model. Yeah, exactly. So that was a completely new thing to to buy something before it had worn out. After World War II, manufacturing kind of dried up, and they were kind of worried. They were like, we've sold all of our stuff, and everyone's got everything they need. So they were like, well, we need to think of new ways to sell things to people. Yeah, we, so need, we need to sell people stuff that they don't need. Exactly. And the best way to do that is to prime those unconscious desires, to prime those unconscious fears, and then in the next breath say, and by the way, this product will fulfill all of your desires or will uh, vanquish all of your fears. And people came to identify themselves with products. Uh, and, and all of that is, frankly, because of Brene. So basically, all of the weird, quiet maltreatment that every living person in the Western world undergoes on a daily basis can almost without hyperbole be laid at the feet of Edward Bernays. That's right. He invented it. Do you guys get this now? Right. (laughs) So he had a super long career, like we said, and he worked, I mean, this is just a smattering of people he worked for. Uh, President Eisenhower. I think he worked for like five or six presidents. Do we have any Eisenhower fans in the crowd? (laughs) (laughs) You liar. Thomas Edison was a client. All right. right. Wow, that really is an Eisenhower fan. Uh, Henry Ford was a client. Samuel Samuel Goldwyn of uh, MGM was a client. Eleanor Roosevelt. And those were just a few. And reportedly, this is Nazi reference number two, reportedly Hitler wanted to hire Edward Bernays to run his propaganda wing, and he turned him down. And we can't find really good verification of that. So what we think because we've studied Edward Bernays, is that he actually cooked that up to tell people, like, you know, I turned down Hitler. To make himself look good. <laughs> we uncovered some Edward Bernays BS. He wanted me, but, eh, well, you know, I had some other clients. So whether that's true or not, there's actually, if this floats your boat at all, guys, if you leave this, this place thinking, like, I really want to know more about this, go check out this really cool documentary called A Century of the Self, right? Yes. It's a four-part BBC documentary, and it delves into a lot of this stuff, um, and it keeps going even further beyond that. But one of the things that's featured in this documentary is newsreel footage of uh, Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister. Nazi reference three. Three of three. Is this it? Yep. You get no more Nazi references. Sorry, guys. Sorry. This is the end of the road with the Nazis. (laughs) So uh, Goebbels um, is talking on film about how much he admires Edward Bernays and his writings and ideas and how it's directly influenced the Nazi propaganda machine. Again. Yes. I like those gasps. No, do the thing. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Uh, He was the first person to use polling, like to poll the public and tell the public what he, you know, everyone should think about products. He was the first to use expert opinions, uh, like uh, nine out of ten dentists say blank. He was the first person to do that. He <laughs> was the first person to use product placement in movies uh, and TV and films. And uh, 
he had a really great knack for getting lots of different people to write him big checks for the same work. Smart guy. Yeah. He's very wealthy, too, by the way, because of this. So, for instance, he had, uh, at one point, um, William Randolph Hearst, the great uh, uh, publisher, newspaper and magazine publisher, came to Bernays, and he said to Mr. Bernays, I feel that we're selling a lot of magazines to men. That's a, that's a great Hearst, <laughs> by the way. But uh, I think women would like to read magazines as well. So how can I sell magazines to women? I haven't a clue, sir. And he just went weirdly British all of a sudden. <laughs> so bad, my impressions. I think uh, it's a great Hearst. I appreciate that. Uh, so he went to uh, Bernays, and Bernays said, you know what? Here's what we'll do. Let's start, let's start putting ads in magazines uh, that cater to women, um, like, like diamonds. Women love diamonds, right? So let's put diamond ads in your magazines. The diamond people were his client. So he was like, I got two chicks now. Yeah, but why stop there? Yeah, why stop there? Let me get, um, let's, let's put like a famous uh, actress in there in these ads. No one had ever done that before. And let's get like Clara Bow and let's put her in these diamonds in the magazine. Clara Bow was also a client. So he's getting three checks for the same stupid diamond ad yep. to sell the same stupid women's magazine. Yep. And then women's magazines were a thing. I'm not saying that's bad. They're great. All right. Yeah, this is this is not about women's magazines. No. <laughs> That'd be weird. But before all of this, before he uh he he gained his massive amount of wealth and influence, he was just a, a little bitty uh regular baby because babies aren't evil. I think he might have been an evil baby no. now that you mention it. All babies are good. I don't know about this one. At least for a few weeks. Uh he was just a little baby born in Vienna, Austria in 1891. Uh, one of five children of Eli Bernays and Anna Freud Bernays. And uh, they were, this part always melts my brain, how it works out with the relationship with Sigmund. I'm sorry, Shlomo. Shlomo. So I need you to explain because I can never get it right. Okay, so Bernays' mother was Freud's sister and Bernays' father was Freud's wife's brother. So it sounds gross, but their minds it really are like, actually I have no idea what that you know? means. <laughs> there was just some sibling swapping going on, which is legal in all countries. It seems like incest. <laughs> but it's really not. It's fine. They're just tight knit family. That's right. So uh, by 1912, he made contact with Uncle Shlomo through the years. He visited Vienna and the, he, you know, he eventually moved to New York and then visited his uncle in the summers. Uh, but eventually in 1912, he graduated from Cornell University and he had his first. Um, gig to sort of influence what his career would be when this uh, producer of a, a play came to him and he said, you know, I've got this play and you're a young upstart uh, person that thinks you know what you're doing and I'm not selling many tickets and I could use your help. It's about this couple with syphilis. It's called Damaged Goods. Seriously. And no one's coming and I can't for life of me figure out why people aren't lined up around the block at the Anthenium Theater. <laughs> Chuck is totally serious about this too. It might have played here. This place has been around for like since the early 1900s. Right? 104 years. Yeah. yeah. No reaction whatsoever. No. <laughs> no respect for anything. They're old. like, had you said 105, maybe. Right. So he goes to Bernays and he said, I, I need some help selling tickets. And Bernays said, you know what we'll do? I have a little plan. Let's uh, let's make this not a dirty thing. Let's get out in front of this because you know what? We should be talking about syphilis because it's a problem. Everyone's got it. Everybody had syphilis at the time. And you're brave enough to do a play about it. So 
get out in front of it and let's make this part of the national conversation. And he engineered, well, it wasn't a huge play, let's get real. <laughs> but he engineered a little campaign and all of a sudden it started selling tickets. So he had his first little, like, uh, feather in his cap, basically. So, and all that sounds fine, sounds great. Like he was the first person to use, let's get out in front of this as a phrase. Um, or he, uh, he, he started a national dialogue or whatever about syphilis, which is a good thing. And this is very Bernaysian, right? So you think you're distracted over here by the good that it did. But really, if you look at it, he just did the whole thing totally cynically to sell tickets to sure. this play called Damaged Goods. Yeah. And that was very Bernays. So he wrote a book, uh, his first book in 1923. It was called Crystallizing Public Opinion. And he was really excited to send it to Uncle Shlomo because he he'd used his work to influence him. And he sent it to him. And uh, he didn't get, like, the most, well, he got a very Shlomo-lian response. So do you guys know Shlomo hated America? We should change that. No more Freudian. No, Shlomo-lian. Shlomo-lian. You have to add an extra L. Shlomo-lian. Yeah, shlomo Try and say it without the extra L. It's impossible. I'm not even going to try. Right. So Shlomo writes him back and says, um, he says, I have received your book, Ellipse. Which is not good in a letter. As a truly American production, it interested me greatly. And he went. Right? And everyone knows Freud was psychic. So when he, he did that when, when he wrote the letter, and then while Bernays was reading it, he did it again because he knew he was reading it right then. And it would really drive the point home. He was not satisfied with just an ellipse. No, he was not. Well, that takes a lot of effort to actually write the ellipse. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Yeah. With a feather and all. Oh, no, wait. I guess he had pins at that point. <laughs> so Freud was, uh, he was a little cool. No? No, they had pens. Okay. Oh, no on the joke? I thought it was a great joke. Great. I didn't realize it was a joke. So yes to everything? Okay, good. Uh, so Uncle Shlomo wasn't super impressed, which... Um, it, it bothered uh, uh, young Edward a little bit, young Eddie. and uh, But it came back to uh, roost a little bit when Shlomo came upon hard times because apparently he did make a windfall of cash. No, he did. Well, at first. The Austrian economy fell apart and inflation went through the roof and his bank accounts just went and he found himself broke. Right. So he needed some dough and uh, little Eddie helped him out. And he said, you know what, let me, let me uh, publish help you get your works published in America. Which, again, sounds nice, but Bernays retained the publishing rights in America. That's right. And didn't he, he actually tried to get him to write articles for one of the new women's magazines, Cosmopolitan. Can you believe that? Like, he, Freud came that close to writing a column in Cosmo. No, seriously. How to satisfy your man in five easy steps. <laughs> Number one. Stroke his beard. Yeah. Uh, smoke a cigar. Ooh, a cigar is not always a cigar. No, especially not in Cosmo. Well, and actually, didn't someone give someone a box of cigars in this transaction? So uh, when when Bernays sent Freud a box of cigars, Freud sent Bernays a book of his general introductory, uh, introductory lectures, which is what inspired all this in Bernays. He actually sent him a box of cigars, right, right. not ironically. Hey, can't you just see Freud like just... <laughs> Like hypnotizing himself, like shaking this box of cigars. Just trying to convince himself a cigar is just a cigar. He was a sicko. Yet I can't put it in my mouth for some reason. 
Wow. All right. 1928, he writes a second book. And at this point, he, he he's not even trying anymore. He calls it Propaganda. <laughs> that was the name of his second book. <laughs> Which was the original name for PR, literally. And he was like, you know what? Maybe we should change that. So he invented the term Propaganda. Oh, or, I'm wait. sorry, PR. Because Propaganda, he thought, kind of had a bad rap. And it had a bad rap because of number four, the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. I knew we could do it. So he said, he was interviewed when he was uh, 100, and he said, uh, propaganda had a bad name, so I made up a new one, called it public relations. His word. So uh, you actually read propaganda, right? Or a lot of it? I read a lot of it. Uh, It's not a long read, but it's what, if I wrote a blurb for it, I would call it a brilliant, comma, despicable read. (laughs) Because uh, the title gives it all away. It's basically a handbook on how to manipulate people on a massive scale. And he, I I think he used the words like dope and stupid. Oh, yeah. Because one of the things, like, we're, we're putting Bernays down. He hated you guys. Yeah. He hated us. He hated all of us. He thought people were generally sheep. Yeah. Unreflective. He used the word stupid and dope a lot. Um, and, for example, in the book Propaganda, he mocks the spread of literacy and says that it just makes it easier for the average person to read an ad. Right? That's a jerk. Do it again. <laughs> I've never had this much control over you. I know. I feel like a marionette. My fingernails hurt so bad. So. <laughs> You're soaking too long. It's not the soaking part. It's the filing oh, okay. and gouging. Do they ever say, like, sir, it looks like you no, just had a No, they're not allowed to talk. Okay. <laughs> so Bernays had this uh, this thing where basically he, the, he, he, he saw society as a very... Uh, well, and he was kind of right, this hierarchical view of society where he thought there's a bunch of dummies out there and they need a, the select few to guide them in the right direction and to narrow the choices down because we're all just big dummies. We can't decide. If we have too many choices, that's no good. Yeah, more than more than two political parties, what shall I do? Yeah, pretty much. And uh, so... He said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my uncle's stuff. I'm going to influence these people. I'm going to narrow the choices down um, because we're all big dummies. And if you have a limited number of options, then you're more likely to choose the one who is writing me a check. Right. <laughs> and much. he actually used the phrase, the hallucination of democracy, which he would describe what we're living in right now. This idea that all of us have some sort of say in this participatory government but really, there's a, an elite group that's actually running the show. So basically... And I'm one of them. Right. Well, we both are. Oh, no, no, not me. Oh. Bernays. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway... <laughs> there's this idea that, like, any, any crackpot theory you've ever heard where there's people running the show or there's an elite shadowy group, this guy's writing the book on this, and he's saying, like, not only is this real, here's how it's done. Here's how to do it more effectively. And the idea was that there were people who were working behind the scenes because one of the really important things that Bernays figured out was that no matter whether we're all stupid sheep who have a, a follow a herd mentality and don't think for ourselves and are driven by violent, selfish, sexual, repressed desires that we're not even aware of, 
We don't like to be pushed around. No. So we don't like to get the idea that somebody's telling us what to do or that we're being manipulated. So all of this working behind the scenes has to happen behind the scenes. We can't know what's going on. So all of this stuff has to be happening at, at what you would call basically a very high level. Yeah. Where even, like, say, the media is manipulated. They're not even on board at this point. And, and again, I know we sound crazy. Just hear us out. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was not very well-liked even within his own profession. He was, he was, sort of, was well-liked socially because he lived in New York and he was super rich because he got all these people to write him big fat checks. And um, he threw these big lavish parties and was sort of a socialite because he loved making these contacts because then he could then manipulate them and use them later to his own uh, end to get big fat checks written for him. That's networking. Okay. <laughs> Which you're not into. You even admit no. that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he, he threw these big parties, but even his own, like he created a profession and the people that benefited from having those jobs didn't even like him. Because he was such a blowhard, he was his own biggest PR guy. And uh, here's a quote, though, from one of his um, one of his clients that uh, I think, yeah, this is foreshadowing too. Is a United Fruit executive said that everybody in the company hated him. Uh, we didn't trust him. We didn't like his politics. We didn't like his fees. But the sense was that we were definitely getting our money's worth. <laughs> and that's how he existed for so long. Yeah, absolutely. He he was and, a master at what he did. Yeah, and that's the thing. It sounds so insulting. But he was right, which really just drives us crazy That's, while we're researching yeah. them. We wanted him to fail at every effort, but all he did was succeed, yep. and it was so maddening. So he was uh, he was extremely good. He was the guy who created the um, uh, basically exploiting what he called special pleaders, people that the rest of us trust, their opinions, that kind of thing. He would go up and be like, "How much will it cost for me to buy your opinion?" And he would come up with things like, like you said, nine out of ten dentists agree. Sure. Or something called the um, calculated simulation of enthusiasm, what you might call like a flash mob today. <laughs> yeah. Or grassroots kind of stuff that's actually astroturfing, that kind of stuff. Um, and he was just a, just a master at this kind of thing. And the best way we figured out to get Bernays across is to kind of go through what we like to call Eddie Bernays' greatest hits. Right. <laughs> Colon, prongs to success. Right. Because what we learned in researching this was he would not attack something with one idea. He wouldn't say, well, maybe we should do this. He'd say, let's do these five things or these two or three things and come at it from all these different angles. Behind the scenes, no one will ever know. Right, and like he was really, really good at his job. Yeah. As evil as he was, he was a hard worker. So uh, cut number one on Eddie Bernays' All My Best. Prongs to success uh, is Vanita hairnets. Everyone here supports Vanita hairnets, right? Right. Everyone, I, I thought I saw a few hairnets in the audience. No, no hairnets. World War One hairnets were a big thing for a little while, and after World War One, uh, women started cutting their hair in a bob, and they didn't need the hairnet anymore, and it was a big problem. 
if you make hairnets. Especially if you were a company called Vanita. Yeah. Because they were the industry leader of hairnets, right? And so they hire Eddie Bernays and they're like, do something. You have to do something. We're losing so much money. And Bernays is like, calm down, calm down. I got this. And he went to work. <laughs> What'd you do? I missed that. I went like this. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, Bernays, um, he, he applies his typical Bernaysian stuff. And he looks around and he says, who do people who wear hairnets listen to? This one's kind of a stretch, but he identified artists as the special pleaders in this case, right? So we went to some leading artists and said, hey, don't you think hairnets make women look beautiful? And they're like, oh, God, no. Have you seen a woman in a hairnet? Are you out of your mind? It's really and then Eddie looking, Bernays actually. did his patented make it rain thing. So he just like went like this with a bunch of cash and an artist, top artist. And the artist said, yes, as a matter of fact, they're awesome. It's probably Clara, it's probably Clara Bow, Clara actually. Bow, yeah, her artist friend. So that's prong number one. So, yes. Yeah, so make these, it fashionable. And these artists are saying... Now, everywhere they go, that uh, hairnets give women a Greek coiffure look. Whatever that stupid, is. Stupid <laughs> words. I'm sure Bernays is like, I can't believe that's what they said. But still. So there's artists saying this, and now all of a sudden, the media who um, pay attention to the art beat are starting to hear all these artists talk about hairnets. And it's all because one or two top artists said it, and now all these other ones, following their herd mentality, are parroting the same thing then the media picks it up. That's prong one. Well, he's also got the media in his hip pocket, and he's, he's calling people and saying, have you noticed everyone wearing these hairnets? Yeah. You might want to write a little story on it in Cosmopolitan. That's all I'm saying. So that's prong number one. Prong number two is he went to manufacturers and factories and said, it seems really dangerous to me that uh, these women are working in your factories because they could be pulled into that lathe. And that's, have you ever seen in that? Have you ever oh, seen one of those pictures? Very, very dangerous. And a head pulled into a wood lathe is no good. So if you wear a hairnet, it solves all the problems. And so they got manufacturers and factories to say, you know what? Everyone needs to have a hairnet. All these women, and I guess men with long hair, which there were probably like three guys. <laughs> Maybe three. Post-World War II. Right. That had long, I'm sorry, World War I even. They had long hair. And uh, all of a sudden he's got two prongs. Look good, be safe. They need a hairnets. Sold a lot of hairnets. Wrote a big giant check. Right. Because... Women all of a sudden were picking up the paper in the morning, reading about how all these artists were talking about how great women look in hairnets. And then after work, they were going to like the union meeting and hearing about how safe hairnets were. And they're thinking, maybe I should grow this bob out. <laughs> and all of a sudden, veneer hairnets are back, baby. <laughs> all because of Edward Bernays. It was, his, it was a big success. It wasn't his first, but it was a big one. Yeah. Cut number two, Edward Bernays, all my best. In 19... Well, let's get in the Wayback Machine. Oh, yeah. All of us. We're in the Wayback Machine. So it, the Wayback Machine is imaginary. Yeah. I'm sorry, you guys. I know. Surely you knew that, right? We actually have room to bring out a DeLorean behind us. We have the room, but not the money. So we're on the Wayback Machine. We're traveling back to 1929. Uh, when it was a taboo for women to smoke in public. It was, um, you know, women would like, you know, kind of have to hide their cigarette smoking at the time. It meant like if a woman, if she smoked, she poked. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's not me saying it. Like, this is the social taboo. I'm just putting it No, that it was in. you saying it. 
That, I, I didn't. I'm not saying that. Like you just said it. But that's. <laughs> he's quoting, but not quoting. I'm just trying to put it in easily approachable terms. But he's right. I kid. That was literally like if you smoked and you were a woman out in public, you were sort of promiscuous, maybe. So uh, that's he, another way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a much, much better way to put it. So he was uh, hired by the American Tobacco Company by um, a man named George George Washington Hill of American Tobacco. A.K.A. Foghorn Leghorn, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> that was no Hearst. And he said, I say, I say, <laughs> Mr. Bonet's, we're selling an awful lot of cigarettes to men. <laughs> But I think we can kill roughly twice as many people if we sell them to women. <laughs> I got these lucky strikes, and they're not flying off the shelf. So what can you do, sir? I got a check. <laughs> Bernays goes. <laughs> He's so young. It's funny, because every time I go like this, I actually, in reality, have to go like that. <laughs> so I feel like a jackass. No. Bernays got on it, right? He was like, yes, this is BS that women can't smoke because of this social taboo and that you can't sell twice as many cigarettes because of this stupid social taboo. So I'm going to go break the social taboo. So Bernays, working behind the scenes, uh, contacted a, a friend who was an editor at Vogue and said, give me a list of debutantes. And they should be good looking, but not modely looking because I want what I'm about to hatch to seem very grassroots, right? So he got his hands on this list, got these women together, um, and said, hey, how would you like to single-handedly advance women's rights? <laughs> and these, these girls right? were like, let's do it. Let's, yes, I'm, I'm ready. I've, got, I've, I've burned my Vanita hairnet, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> and uh, so he said, this is what we're going to do. In New York, they have an Easter parade every year. Still do. And this year, on uh, what April 1st, 1929, all you gals are going to be out there on Fifth Avenue. And right in the middle of this Easter parade, you're all going to light up at once. And it'll be called, we'll call it, no, I don't know, just thinking off the top of my head, the Torches of Freedom campaign. <laughs> and it will, you will put women on the map. And the women said, let's do this. Yeah, he did. He, did. he literally cast them from an agency. And I think he said he wanted to, like, not too good-looking because right. we don't want to give ourselves away. Yeah. But I still want some good-looking broads, right? They, they can't be dogs or anything, you know what I mean? That was Bernays. That was Bernays saying that. That was Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> see? Yeah, yeah, no dogs, see? Don't even think about it. Too pretty. Not pretty enough. Just right. Stop wasting my time. That was a lot of Edward G. Robinson. So, uh... He, he concocted this Torches of Freedom parade. He, he, of course, like he always had the media in his hip pocket, he leaked it and said, you know what I heard? I heard there's some women that are going to, like, smoke in public And in you know parade. what that means. Right. Chuck, <laughs> <laughs> you are so lucky this is an audio podcast. I learned that when I was, like, nine that's literally the safest way to portray I, that. I don't know if that's necessarily true. You just took better, all the heat off of me. Better than saying poke. <laughs> you guys are going to leave tonight and be like, Josh is great, but that Chuck. Yeah. He's, he's edgy. I didn't think he was that dirty. <laughs> His beard makes him seem so approachable. 
right, so that was prong one, and it was a huge hit. Yeah, The yeah. international press, they were like papers in Paris, France, writing about these women. Well, in France, they all smoked all the time. So right. probably not in Paris. But international press picked this up, and it was a it was a big thing all over the world. Yeah, these these women are smoking, and now in the press, it's equated with women's rights. So you've come a you, long way, baby. Yes, that came later, but yes, basically the same sentiment, right? So this idea was now, if you oppose women smoking, you overtly opposed women's rights. The gauntlet had been laid down in secret by Edward Bernays, right? So, like Chuck yes. says, that was just prong one. Prong two was. He was a research animal. He made us look like human garbage as far as research goes, right? <laughs> this guy put everything he had into research, and he figured out that um, there were a lot of problems men had with women smoking. And so he hired a nurse to go around the country to teach women to smoke better. <laughs> Because who else would you hire but a nurse? Yeah, well, that's who people trust. Right? I mean, if you're going to learn about smoking, you learn it from a nurse, right? Do it right. That's where everybody here learned to smoke. So her name was Florence Linden. She was a uh, former actress and nurse. And uh, so she went around to, like, the Society of New York State Women and garden clubs and all these things to teach etiquette smoking to, to not annoy your husbands. And they actually, he actually did research and uh, some polling to find out what really annoys you about when your wife or girlfriend smokes? And there are some real answers. This is not made up. Pet peeves. Number one is the messy way they open the packages. <laughs> Which apparently was like with their teeth or something. Yeah. <laughs> really bugs me. <laughs> Number two was the affected mannerisms, how you smoke. It's all like uh, showy and stuff. Like this. <laughs> Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> right. Bernays invented that. He made yep. Andrew Dice Clay's career. Yep. Uh, number three, puffing like a steam engine. There's just too much smoke when you're smoking. Like hot boxing, yeah. basically. Eh, hot boxing is different. <laughs> I went to college. Uh, number four was... Uh, lipstick smears. You smoke and you get, like, that lipstick I make you wear gets all over that cigarette filter. <laughs> it's really annoying. I don't want to see it in the ashtray. I know. It's not funny. So those were literally the, the feedback. They also actually, because I figured they had, to, they had to make it equal, so they had said, what annoys you women when your men smoke? Right. And it, at the end of the story, they'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, wait. Hold on now. Sure. Yeah. we got to ask you, too. And they would find out. Yeah, and that was uh, when you put your men put their cigarettes out on their uh, dinner plate. <laughs> was number one, and number two was uh, when they are just smoking and they just run it under the faucet and just drop it in the sink and leave. But but Miss Linden, equal opportunity sexist, she taught everyone <laughs> that um, if you are smoking in bed, you should use a closed ashtray. Right, Which all of us. Sense. It's just smart. That's prong number two. Prong number three was uh, he did research again and found out, did some surveys, that uh, women didn't like Lucky Strike Green, the color of the, the package. It just it wasn't the color of the day. It didn't match anything they wore. So they didn't want to, like, carry around the cigarettes. So what did he do? He made green fashionable, like, basically single-handedly. He threw green balls. 
he made sure that all the department stores had, like, green gowns in their windows. And now, all of a sudden, Lucky Strike Green was the color of the season, thanks to Edward Bernays' third prompt, (laughs) to sell cigarettes. And it was totally and completely successful. Foghorn Leghorn, like, went to sleep every night on a bed of money. And Edward Bernays' hump grew three times. All right, prong, or I'm sorry, not a prong. Another, another cut from the album, uh, Bacon for Breakfast. Anyone here eat bacon this morning? You want to know something? Bacon was not a breakfast food until Edward Bernays came along. Yeah. Serious, I know, right? Oh, poor bacon. <laughs> I feel so bad for that part of the pig. We just ate it at lunch and dinner. Bernays came along because uh, he was hired by the Beechnut uh, Packing Company who made bacon. And they said, we're selling a lot of bacon for lunch and dinner. But, but not enough. Yeah, sure, it would be nice to sell it for breakfast. What can you do for me? I have a big, giant check and a pen. And he said, uh, let's see, who do people listen to when they're thinking about their diet? <laughs> Doctors? Sure. If I write a big enough check, I could co-opt a doctor. And he did. He found a doctor who wrote a study saying, we should all start eating hearty breakfasts featuring bacon. And Bernays took the study and forwarded it to other doctors who were like, yeah, we subscribe to a herd mentality. Let's follow this guy's advice. They started. But he included a sample of bacon to sweeten the pot. Beech nut bacon. Right. And uh, all of a sudden, doctors were like, "Uh, by the way. Yeah. You should be eating more bacon for breakfast. Because breakfast at the time, like everyone's seen Mad Men, it was like a piece of dry toast, coffee, and a cigarette. That was breakfast. The big hearty breakfast didn't come along until Edward Bernays made it so. And supposedly he invented the expression, a meal that sticks to your ribs. Evil genius. Evil genius. So bacon, do you clap for it? You're about to feel bad for clapping for Edward Bernays because... This is about where Bernays' career takes a really dark turn. A dark and successful turn. <laughs> so uh, we are, should we go in the Wayback Machine again? Yeah. This, well. time, this time, everybody, we're going to Jamaica. Yeah. 1870, the, we're going way back. Yep, there's a dude named Lorenzo Dow Baker, and he was the skipper of a ship called the Telegraph, and he showed up in Jamaica one day because he wanted some rum. Which is pretty smart to do when you're in Jamaica in 1870. What else is there to do? And while he's sitting there at the bar drinking, some guy comes up and says, uh, you want some bananas? I've got a bunch for 25 cents a bunch, right? Yeah. 160, I think, is what he bought. Yeah, he said, well, that's a heck of a price for uh, bananas. Yeah. I'm, we, I'm pretty drunk. Yeah. I'll <laughs> take a bunch of bananas. We don't have a, like, he was from Boston. He's like, we don't have a lot of bananas in Boston. I don't know if you know that. I bet I could sell these for a lot of dough. And he did. In 1870, he was selling, reselling these bananas for up to $3.25 a bunch. Yeah. It's a lot of money back then. That is a lot. He bought like half of the U.S. probably with his proceeds. <laughs> we, we failed to go figure out how much that is in today dollars, but it was a lot, believe us. Someone out there is checking there on that uh, website. <laughs> it's, it's that guy. <laughs> So it worked out really well for Lorenzo Dow Baker, and by 1885, he had 11 ships flying under the banner of uh, the Boston Fruit Company. They would uh, they were bringing in 10 million bunches of bananas a year at this point. They became United Fruit, and eventually became Chiquita Banana, which we all enjoy today, right? Right. 
still today, don't you? There are a couple of oohs, like, oh, my God. <laughs> Not Chiquita. That's my favorite banana. I can't eat any of that other crap. It's got to be Chiquita. It's the only banana. So everything's going very, very well for United Fruit. Um, and by 1940, they basically owned a number of countries. In fact, the, uh, the term Banana Republic came from this, um, this idea that United Fruit ran the economy and essentially the government of countries in Latin America, including Guatemala. And by 1940, a guy named Sam Zamuri, who was known as Sam the Banana Man, was yeah. running United Fruit. The best we can figure is that he, he had to have gotten that name after he worked there. I don't know if that's necessarily true. He, he like literally could have been born to become the head of United Fruit. Like, think about it. If you were interviewing people, wouldn't you like give a second look to the guy named Sam the Banana Man? Yeah, yeah come if on you're in. A fruit company? Sam the Banana Man. Oh, I like the... I got to say, sir, you, you've got a leg up. So Sam Zermurray became the head of United Fruit, and they were selling tons of bananas at this point, but it wasn't enough. It's never enough. And so they controlled, like Josh said, much of Central America, owned all their bananas, and they weren't getting a lot in return, let's be honest. You know how it works. And he said, Mr. Bernays, I'd like to sell more bananas. I'm Sam the Banana Man, after all. I can't lose that name. That would be embarrassing. So how, how can you help us? Bernays. <laughs> he said, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Hold on, I'm still thinking. Okay, he said, when do you it. see my prongs program? Yeah, have you heard about my prongs? Uh, so Bernays says, I think we should try to make bananas appear healthy. Maybe we'll sell them as like kind of a health food, which they're not no. <laughs> at all, actually. Banana, that's not true. Bananas are completely healthy. No, that's not true. That's actually Bernays at work right before your very eyes. No. No, bananas are healthy. You're being coy. Bernays. He was, that was like the one honest thing he did, actually. So bananas aren't healthy. Look it up. <laughs> that was prong one. I don't know if I'm going to count that as a prong. That's a prong? Okay, prong Taking one. something that's patently unhealthy and, and saying it's healthy, that's a prong. Prong number two, he said, you know what we need to do? I'm going to go on a banana assault in this country. Full frontal banana assault. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that movie. Uh, yeah. And the sequel. It was, it was very dirty. He said, let's get bananas. I want them in hotels. I want them in hotel lobbies. I want them in uh, YMCA's. I want them on, on trains. I want them in airports. Yep. I want them in y, uh, Boy Scout rooms all across the country. I want them wait, in... Wait, 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 In a what room? In a Boy Scout room? You wrote this, and it says Boy Scout. I, it doesn't say Boy Scout room anywhere. <laughs> I think you're having a seizure or something. I want them in movie studios. I want them at, at Palm Beach. I want them at resorts. Bananas are everywhere, and people are like, have you noticed there's bananas, like, all over the place? Yeah, like movie studios. I feel like bananas. I should be eating these right. a little bit. Well, I hear they're very healthy. Right. So maybe you should eat a bunch of bananas right now. I'll watch. That was prong. <laughs> Man. I love Chicago. Yeah, for real. Detroit was just like, I don't get it. 
<laughs> well, now we can't release this show. We can we can edit that part out, right, guys? We'll lose all 400 of our Detroit fans. <laughs> so that's prong two. Prong two. Prong three is he said. I think what we can do to sell more bananas. I think if people had a connection to where bananas came from, they would be psyched about it. Kind of like later with the Chiquita banana lady, it's like, hey, that's kind of cool. Look at her. She's wearing bananas on her head. Right. She's a weirdo. <laughs> so he, he set up a, one of his fronts, which he often did. Yeah, he would, he would pay professionals to put out a, an opinion that was prescribed by him that jibed with what he wanted him to say. And in this case, it was called the, the Middle America Information Bureau. Which had nothing to do with the Midwest, sorry. Yeah. He was talking about Latin America. Don't know why he called it that, but he did. So the Middle America Information Bureau was a, a, Chiquita, a Chiquita-backed, well, United Fruit-backed think tank. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing that they did was put out press releases about how awesome Latin America was and how when you ate a banana on your lunch break, you could basically, now that you know about Latin America, take a little mini vacation to the tropics because you know about Latin America because the Middle America Information Bureau has been putting out press releases to the newspapers, which are now printing them because newspapers could not have cared less, apparently, at the time. So they would print banana-related stuff. So this is great. This is working really well. The banana assault, full frontal banana assault, (laughs) was working great. People are eating bananas. and They're like, we're supporting this economy down there. We're like feeding families by eating their bananas. Not true. Because... And have you seen the lady who wears all the fruit? Oh, I love that lady. (laughs) What was going on was there was a dictator in Guatemala, which is where they were getting a lot of bananas at the time, and a United Fruit ally named... Jorge Ubico, and uh, he was... I feel like you should say that in your Italian accent for some reason. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, but... Jorge Ur... Ur- no. no. Urbico. Doesn't, doesn't work. Sorry, everybody. Well, that was Latin-flavored, at least. Right? Oh, yeah. No, that was good, but oh, the okay. Italian, it wouldn't fit. Man, I'm like a yo-yo with you. <laughs> so he was in the... Uh, Jorge Ubico was clearly in the pocket of United Fruit because he was getting kickbacks and he was like, yeah, man, come to my country, give me some dough. Who cares about all the people? They're just peons. Own all our land and just give me some dough. And he was basic, well, not overthrown. He was taken out by popular vote. I think he was actually overthrown and then they held a popular oh, election. Okay. Yeah, so he was like, you're out of here, pal, at gunpoint, basically. Okay. But the guy who came in after him was elected democratically and won 85% of the popular vote, which is, I don't think this probably ever happened legitimately in any kind of democratic election. He's a very beloved man named Juan Jose Arevalo, right? And uh, he was a leftist. He definitely thought that one of, one of his principal ideas was that he wanted to be able to create internal competition to United Fruit among Guatemalan farmers. His idea was, this is our land, these are our bananas, this is our population. We should be able to make money off of these bananas like United Fruit is. So United Fruit, you can stay, but we're going to treat our people better from now on, and we're going to actually subtract some of your wealth by doing that. United Fruit didn't like that at all. No, they didn't. Uh, one of the first things he did was they, uh, you know, United Fruit owned all this land, this fallow land that wasn't even being used. And he said, you know what? You bought this land from us for $3 an acre. I'd like to buy it back for the $3 an acre. I see your tax return says $3 an acre. 
So let's just do that. And United Fruit said, well, actually, it's more like $75 an acre now. <laughs> just out of the blue. Yeah. So let's, let's just up the price on you. But he was able to get a lot of the land back. He was able to build some roads through the country and actually provide competition to the United Fruit, which would become Chiquita, which was not a good thing. No, United Fruit was like, this is a really, really, really big deal. We've had total control over this country for half a century at least. And um, this guy comes along, and now he's stealing our land that we stole? No, that's not okay. Yeah. It's not all right. So they went to their friends at the CIA and Edward Bernays and said, guys, what can you do? And they talked to the right guy because Edward Bernays said, let's just overthrow the government. <laughs> and they did. Yeah. They literally overthrew the government, and, and he thought the first thing we have to do is we have to get the American people behind this because you just can't overthrow a government without the people being behind it. So let me think about this. Um, aren't there a lot of communists in Guatemala? Oh, yeah. And wait, wait. Isn't the Soviet Union communist? We hate those guys. Yeah, the Red Scare. And everyone's like, well, there really are no communists in Guatemala, actually. And he said, well, nobody knows that. So let's get all my friends in the magazine and put in the newspaper business to write a story about the brewing uh, crisis in Guatemala. Right. So, so they're the, right at our door. They're just below Mexico. In our and backyard. that's just below Texas. Right, yeah. In Texas, everybody. Texas. <laughs> so this Middle America Information Bureau goes from putting out press releases about how wonderful bananas are to the brewing Soviet crisis in Guatemala. And the newspapers listened. They started reporting on this, and it became a really big deal that there was a Soviet threat in our backyard, just below Texas, again. And um, the American public got on board, basically. Yeah, so once he had the American public support, he got in touch with a, a former uh, lieutenant colonel uh, from the U.S. Army living in exile and said, why don't you get some CIA buddies together? And let's cross the border from Honduras with a couple of hundred men that are well-trained, and let's call it the Army of Liberation, and let's overthrow the government. And that's what he did, plunging Guatemala into a decades-long civil war, including genocide, all to, to sell, sell bananas. Bananas. Ooh. Yeah, that's the appropriate <laughs> response to that. So we said all this, and we said that we are still living right smack dab in the middle of this. Hopefully all this seemed vaguely familiar to you. Um, and recently, I think in 2008, all of this, this idea um, took on a new, a new name and, and new momentum. Have you guys ever heard of nudge politics? Anyone? No? A yeah, couple, a couple of people? people. So basically nudge is this new thing. It's the new name for all of this. And it's the idea that people are stupid and that you have to have elite people figuring out what the best outcome is and then nudge people toward that outcome without people understanding that they're being nudged. Sounds familiar? Yes, it does. And as a matter of fact, this has re recently under a presidential um, executive order become policy in the American government. And That's right. It seems kind of benign, a lot of it, right? Like I think sure. the USDA is using nudge to, um, like you, you'll get a prompt sometimes if you're printing and you're, you're working at the USDA. And they'll say, don't forget to change your printer preferences to double-sided which everybody loves double-sided printing. What's wrong with that? Nothing. But beyond this kind of benign idea um, that nudge or that 
that PR, the idea of this hallucination of democracy is, is harmless or we can be nudged in the right direction are two really important points. And one is that the people in charge know what the best outcome is. And the best outcome is often subjective. Sure. Like we might not think that the best outcome is the same as the people who are deciding what the best outcome is. The second one is that the people who get to decide what the best outcome is has all of our best interests in heart. That's not necessarily true either. So you can easily go from two-sided printing to, no, you need to decide that um, the death penalty will never, ever go away no matter what you think. Right. Or let's just make the, the easiest thing, like you have to opt out of organ donation. We're not saying organ donation is bad, mind you. Yeah, we're not equating organ donation with death penalty or anything. No. <laughs> but things like opt-out clauses, like it's just included because it's the, for the benefit of everybody. It can get a little slippery, you know, and a nudge becomes a little more like a shove when it's in the hands of the wrong person, which you have to really be careful about. Yeah. So that is, well, here, here we go. Let's finish up with this. <laughs> Or not finish up. There's more. You would think after all of this. Are you guys confused? After Edward Bernays uh, sold us bacon as the healthy thing to eat for breakfast and bananas as a healthy thing to eat all day long. And women should smoke cigarettes and let's overthrow Guatemala to sell a fruit. He would have been in his hundreds on his deathbed and thought, you know what? I kind of regret some of the things I did in my career. Not true. No. He couldn't even look up. Yeah. <laughs> he was interviewed by a guy from the New York Times when he was 100 years old. And he basically said, yeah, people are stupid dopes. And I stand by everything I did. And I had a pretty great career. Yeah. As a matter of fact, his last words were, tell him I said they were stupid. <laughs> So that's Edward Bernays. That's his career. And we're going to finish out with a bit of a, uh, a list that we like to do, a top ten list that is always only five or six because it's us. Some of the worst PR disasters in history. And uh, we're going to open up with one uh, U.S. Airways, not Delta. <laughs> a few years ago, a young woman complained to uh, U.S. Airways that uh, her spring break was ruined. Which, man, if you're in college, that's a big deal, you know? You only have one spring break a year. Yeah, that's true. And they said, we don't like to hear this, Alex. Please provide feedback to our customer relations team right here. And they left a, uh, a link for all the world to click on. And that link went to a pornographic image of a woman with a model Boeing 747 uh, and she was doing things with it. <laughs> That's a big plane. <clears throat> Someone probably lost their job <laughs> over that one. You got Philip Morris? So uh, we love picking on smoking because it's so easy. Um, but you guys are familiar with Philip Morris, the big smoking tobacco giant. Apparently in 2001, the uh, Czech government 
came up with a study that found, surprisingly, that smoking actually cost their economy money. And Philip Morris said, no, no, no. Let us commission our own study and find out what the real deal is. And they found and announced publicly, check government, you're wrong. We found that smoking actually saves your economy up to $30 million a year. And do you want to know how? By early smoking deaths. (laughs) All that money you guys would have spent on health care, pensions, housing, you didn't have to because those smokers died early. And they were like, this is a good study. Look at this. Right. And Philip Morris was surprised by the blowback. They actually were like... Uh, we have other studies that we should probably cancel <laughs> lined up in other countries because we thought this was going to be the thing that really drove home to everybody how great smoking is. <laughs> I love that one. All right. Uh, in 2002, Abercrombie and Fitch. <laughs> That's all you have to say. Shirtless dudes. That's all I think about. And ironically, this is about T-shirts. They had a line of T-shirts that were racist in 2002, uh, depicting Asian stereotypes. Um, Well, what was one of the shirts? (laughs) I'm sorry, everybody. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, Wong Brothers Laundry Service. Two Wongs can make it white. And they stood behind it. Their their quote for this campaign was, we personally thought Asians would love this (laughs) T-shirt. That was their corporate communications people that came up with that. That was the company's response to the blowback. And not to be outdone, one month later, 30 days later, they released their line of uh, thongs for 10 to 12-year-old girls. And their corporate communications response to that was, you know, the underwear for young girls, was uh, the intent was to be lighthearted and cute. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? Everybody, uh, have you guys heard of Coca-Cola? You guys have Pepsi up here, right? Well, we have Coke down south, and Coke is huge. Right. And Coke back in, I think, like the 90s, the early 90s, um, Coke had this thing called the Magic Can campaign. Does anyone remember that? So, you? okay, you, sir, can go to sleep for the next two minutes. <laughs> so the Magic Can campaign was basically you'd pick up a Coke, and you'd open it, and a prize would shoot out toward your face. Yeah. That's not even the bad part. It literally man. had a spring-loaded mechanism yeah. that would shoot out. Like sometimes the prize was like a hundred bucks, which is awesome. Great. Sometimes it was a dollar, so you would buy the coke you wanted and open it to get a dollar, and then buy the coke you wanted. <laughs> but have like thirty so, cents left over. Yeah, it's a net zero. I think at that point it's close. So Coke um, had this thing going. They were very excited. Everything was going great. But the problem was is that people were opening these magic cans and being like, oh, a dollar, great, thanks, Coke, and then taking a sip and going, (laughs) right? Because the stuff inside tasted like poison. What is this? tasted like chlorinated water. I better call my local poison tip line. And people did. And poison lines across the country started getting hot, like, tips that you should not drink these magic can Cokes. And it became enough of a deal that Coke had to take out ads saying, like, don't drink the stuff in the magic cans, <laughs> which is not what you want to do if you're a beverage company, yeah. right? You can go home on YouTube and look up Coke Magic Can, and there are commercials that say, you know, the Coke Magic Can, that guy, 
if you open the Coke and, and something pops out, don't drink it because you won. <laughs> but seriously, don't drink it. <laughs> Did I mention not to drink it? Right. So they, they genuinely had to take out ads saying this. That was bad enough, right? But then some people in the media started to think and went, hmm, hmm, hmm. Coke, why didn't you just put Coke in the magic cans? You got a lot right? of Coke. Yeah. You're set up for Coke. And, and put surely, Coke in it. Yeah. Coke. Why chlorinated water? Coke released a response, and they said, we didn't put Coke in the magic cans because it would dissolve the prize mechanisms. <laughs> A hundred million dollar campaign, done. hundred million dollars. I love that one, too. That is a good one. Heineken? So you guys are familiar with Heineken. Did you know they own Strongbow Cider? Did you guys know that? Well, Strongbow had a campaign where they wanted to honor the guy who uh, founded the company. And apparently he founded it in like the 19th century. He's a Victorian dude. But they could not find a picture of this man to save their lives. And you can't have a print ad campaign if you don't have a photo. What the heck are you going to do? So they turned to a photo service like Getty Images or something like that. And they just randomly picked a great Victorian-looking dude. Most likely had the mustache, monocle, top hat probably, that kind of thing. And um, it would have worked in, in just about any other situation. But they happened to pick the picture of a guy named Hugh Price Hughes. And yeah. He was a very famous Methodist minister, and he was actually famous for his work with recovering alcoholics. <laughs> Out of all the people in the world, they picked an anti-alcoholic campaigner for the face of Strongbow Cider. To stand in for their founder. All right, and finally, before our Q&A, we're going to finish with this. Because we, we like to depress everybody at the yeah. end. <laughs> Our friend John Hodgman said, you know how to really go out with a bang? Lift them up and then drop them down. Drop them down at the end. So uh, does anyone here remember, I spoke of Domino's Pizza earlier. (laughs) You remember the Noid? Avoid the Noid? Yeah. You remember because it was successful for a while. The Noid, the creepy uh, bunny-eared buck-teeth thing in a onesie that represented a Noid. That's what it came from. That your pizza wasn't there. They created this fun character. Right. It was neat. And I mean, like, clearly it was a huge hit because you guys still remember this. We remember the Noid. And everything was going really great for the Noid and Domino's in general. Everybody just talked about the Noid around the water cooler. Like, husbands and wives <laughs> would have pillow talk about the Noid. And Did you get that pizza really quick a, last night? Oh, deal. yeah. That right. was great, yeah. man. Love the Noid. 25 minutes. Um, so everything was going very well. And then in our own Atlanta, Georgia... In uh, January 1989, a Domino's pizza was stormed by a man wielding a 357 Magnum, and he took the two employees working there hostage, and he engaged in a five-hour standoff with police, and he very wisely ordered the two employees to make him pizzas the whole time, seriously. And he had a few other demands. He wanted $100,000, sensible. Yes. He wanted a getaway car with a full tank of fuel, sensible. Very sensible. He wanted a copy of the the widow's son. Yeah, it was a novel about Freemasons. <laughs> he, that was his catcher in the rye. Right, and it's it's a it's kind of a big giveaway, right? Yeah, he must have left his at home. Right, I really need this. Right. So 
he apparently wasn't paying attention because at one point the two employees were like, well, I think we can sneak out of the back. And they did. They left. And right when they did... He was the, reading The Widow's Son. I think he was. <laughs> He's like, God, this book is so good. And then the police were like, swarm, swarm, swarm. I don't think they say that. No. <laughs> but they did swarm, swarm, swarm. And it's a pretty good Seinfeld reference. Um, and this guy was taken peacefully. I think he fired a round off or whatever, but he was taken and, uh, he was taken before the court and he was sentenced to a term in a psychiatric facility. Why? Why? Because his name was Kenneth Lamar Noid. Yes. And Chuck? I know. And he thought Domino's, sorry, Domino's Pizza was specifically, uh, tormenting him with his ad campaign. Because he was a paranoid schizophrenic. <laughs> yeah, right? oh, is right, right? It gets We're way, way down. worse, man. It does get worse. It gets so much worse. So Domino's is facing a PR disaster. There's, there was one headline the next day. Um, Domino's hostages couldn't avoid the noid this time. I know. Those cheeky newspaper writers they thought they were so clever so poor mr noid is like suffering in a mental facility in georgia and finally years later he's released i think he moved to like miami and in 1995 he couldn't shake this idea that Domino's had specifically targeted him with their avoid the noid campaign and he committed suicide yeah which is pretty perfect reaction pretty awful in detroit they were like yeah yeah they were like Hey, I guess you shouldn't have been born annoyed. <laughs> it's his fault. <laughs> so, it gets even worse, actually. Yeah. It gets worse than that. That's right. In 2011, just four short years ago, on the 25th anniversary of the Noid, Domino's introduces a Facebook game called the Noid Super Pizza Shootout. And that is PR. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for coming out, hanging out with us. Good night, Chicago. Thank you, everybody. Y'all are awesome. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 